the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Oh my God. So this is kind of wild. This is our uh, season two closer. We've been doing this for two years, which is uh, kind of crazy to me. You know, um, a lot of nights you've, you've we've spent in, in my basement here. Sounds really creepy. It does. We've spent so many nights in your basement. This is the longest relationship I've ever had. Two years. Two years running strong. Running I'm, strong. I'm so proud of us. We've gotten this far. I mean, not to toot, toot our own horns here, but man, boop, boop. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really stoked. And, and I mean, to know where we've come from with the episodes no one will ever hear except you and I. And, um, you know, where we are today, I'm... Uh, just constantly proud of us and it, it, it's my favorite job i don't get paid for yeah i love same it here. same here i love it so much well we've picked a movie that we both love for our uh, season two closer and one of my favorite movies of all time actually this is a movie that on my birthday or around my birthday yeah the last several three years i guess mm-hmm. i make uh like three lasagnas which is just you're crazy, a madman which is crazy you're in itself. making man. three lasagnas takes a lot <laughs> of time to make them from scratch but yeah. i make three lasagnas you press that pasta yourself i, I don't make them from well scratch. we're gonna have to amp okay. it up i guess next all right, all next right. year I don't make the pasta. I'll no. make the gluten free, dairy free. Uh, uh, but I, but I, I assemble everything. <laughs> I, 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 I put some, I put some love and effort into it. Justin, it is immaculate. Your lasagnas are uh, incredible. But I, but I make the food. I do a lot of food. I take my time. Put a lot of love into it. And then we all eat. Just and I invite people over. We have a big family style meal, and then we watch Goodfellas. Now. Do you take a razor and thinly slice the garlic? You know, the first year <laughs> that I, I attempted, I did, you did take a razor and thinly slice the garlic. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that would just take me like three entire, hours later for as much garlic <laughs> as you need for the sauce that I make. Yeah, I would just be up till, you know, my hand would be like all cramped up. So he must not use very much garlic in the yeah. sauce that they're making. You aged another I, year I definitely, by the time I definitely, you were done. I go easy on the onions, though. It's a, it's a good sauce with not a not a ton of onions. There was very little lasagna when I got over here this time. Now, granted, I was late a little bit. Very little lasagna. There was well, not not a whole lot of veggie lasagna. I, I apologize, veggie lasagna. Yeah. But um, it was wonderful. Salad was wonderful. I think all the bread was gone. But yeah, the bread the so, bread gets eaten up pretty quick. I did know. two loaves too, but it, garlic bread. I gotta get here earlier next gotta time. Gotta get here early. I know. But the screening Goodfellas was incredible this time around. It was amazing with so many people watching it at your house that everyone was so engaged. Well, there was two people that came that had never seen Goodfellas. It's <laughs> pretty cool. Uh, which is wild because they had both seen recently The Irishman. Oh, um, wow. So it was kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, it's like uh, 
there wasn't any fidgeting. It's always kind of a worry when I do a more intimate screening with mm-hmm. like 10 or more people that people get fidgety because we started the movie fairly early because Goodfellas is like clocks in like two and a half hours. And yeah. I've seen this movie like probably like 40 times. And this still remains to me, in all honesty, like the fastest moving long movie. It's like the shortest, fa- <laughs> yeah. it's the shortest long movie I've ever seen. It's weird how that is, it, and it's, I mean, it's the story, it's the performances, it's visual stylings, everything about the movie just makes it move so quickly, and it and it yeah. is, I think the reason that it moves so quickly, that is part of the story, and you're supposed to feel kind of catapulted and, and just like shoved through this world, there's so much information being thrown at you, and it really does, yeah, this feels like an hour and a half long movie, I... I yeah, have no idea how many it times moves I've so quick. And, it recently. I mean, and this is back when, you know, when this came out, I mean, now, I mean, I've talked about it before, like a lot, most movies, like I check the running time before <laughs> I go see a new movie because it's like everything's clocking in at like 2.45 and I'm just like, what the hell? And this movie's, yeah, just good. It's only two and a half hours, but it, back in the day, like there wasn't a lot of movies that clocked in that long. It was like 2.10 was a long movie, especially for a drama. But yeah, this is just moves like lightning it's saying a lot too because back when we did an episode on casino another um scorsese film that one is three hours long and again just moves just at lightning speed and does not feel like three hours long this one um i i can't really say which one i'd i'd prefer to watch i think that they're vastly different films but uh man watching goodfellas so many times in a row recently it's uh never gets old. Yeah. Say that. Well, we uh we've got a lot to talk about with Goodfellas. We're probably only going to be able to really even scratch the surface with a movie like this. I mean, you could do like a three-part podcast on For sure. this movie, but our first discussion we'll get into a lot with uh the transformation from the script to the screen because this was uh based on a book. This is a a lot of what you see in Goodfellas is true to life. It's like what really happened. And we touched on this a few episodes ago, um, how, uh, you know, movies that kind of feel like biopics, but they don't feel like biopics. Yeah. You know, yeah, we've, yeah. we've touched on that a few, on a few episodes, but this one definitely certainly doesn't feel like a biopic. I mean, even though like, you know, you have some standard things of like information on the screen and words on the screen saying like time period or whatever, but uh, this feels like its own movie. So we'll definitely go into sort of like the real life uh, Henry Hill, which the movie is based upon. Uh, and, uh, you know, throughout the episode, we'll sprinkle in uh, sort of like truth versus fiction because, you know, we could do a whole episode just on the real Henry Hill and, Dude, and there's the crew so much that there dealt with so much there. And then discussion two, we'll get into some of the cast. We'll get into Scorsese's, uh, you know, we've talked, we talked a little bit about Scorsese when we did Casino, but we'll talk a little bit more about his career and uh, how really the, you know, he is really kind of like the the king of the gangster pictures. I mean, it's, you know, his whole career is just, you see it, you see it, you know, from the beginning of his career to just recently with the Irishman. Yeah. So, I have a yeah. feeling we're going to be throwing in a lot of different things in this discussion. Yeah, just about like this, this is be a hyperactive episode, but but rightly so for Goodfellas. <laughs> we're just we're going to try to, you know, shoehorn things in here and there when we can. We're getting our lines of cocaine set up right now. We're just going to like catapult through this episode. <laughs> you think I'm joking? Yeah, I was supposed to take the red pills, right? <laughs> uh, not the blue ones. The barrel shaped, the orange right. barrel shaped. 
Something I also wanted to mention before we get too far into this thing, we do edit our show a little bit. Things don't always go so smoothly. We try to edit some of that stuff out. We're going to go to our blooper reel from season two. It's been a great year, um, but we have had some flubs, um, but sometimes they're fun to play at the end of the year. A lot of listeners seem to really like the uh, short little reel we did last year, so we're going to do it again. And there's also probably a little bit of language in that. So just be forewarned, it's a Goodfellas episode. Probably going to hear some F-bombs. So here's our blooper reel for season two. Well, your pick was uh, not also a, Not a dark. road. Chip, 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 chip. Go ahead. Your pick was... All, you say that again. Oh, your okay. Pick. Oh, John Candy. Man. Rest in peace. Seriously. Jeez. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. <laughs> um, but yeah, rest in peace to both of these John Candy gentlemen. and John Hughes. Tell me about your fucking movie that you picked. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Okay. I'm really sorry. I'm such a fucking scumbag. I'm really sorry. Okay. <laughs> I can't even look at you right now. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Can you even imagine the pressure? Improv isn't the easiest. And as Billy has said many times, you've got to be afraid. Stan. I'm sorry. You've got to be unafraid to die over and over and over again before you can create some true magic on stage. Buddy, stop. Stanley, stop it. Hey, stop. Stop. Dude. Dude. I like move my legs and all of a sudden he just like Stanley. Stop. He's such a dick sometimes. Okay, we good? We're good. Okay. Bill Cobbs, who I mentioned before, who plays the old man in New Jack City who guns down uh, Snipes' Nico Brown in the film's final scene. So after a... You said Nico Brown again. God damn it, I sure did. <laughs> like we said, uh, Deliverance's Burt Reynolds um, is in this. He plays the town sheriff along with... Uh, oh, God. God, why is this so fucking hard right now? You know, the 16-year-old me coming in and asking for it, so they offered to order me a copy to buy. God, I must have been so annoying for them. What a nerd. I know, right? I think it was like $25 for that VHS copy, too. And explaining to my mom, yeah, mom, can you just stop real quickly? I just got to run into that video store just real quick, like all the time. What was she thinking I was looking for? Anyway. I just feel bad for anybody that walked into a video store with me in the 90s. <laughs> so we're going to be hey, here for a cool if we just like uh, pop into the old blockbuster and they're just like, fuck, dude, just pick a goddamn movie, you son of a bitch. God damn it, Justin. We're going to be here, here this for one like looks three good hours. right here. Here, <laughs> grab three of these and let's get the fuck out of here. So those were our bloopers for season two. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, it's always fun to kind of listen back to some of that stuff. Um, but anyway, lots to talk about with Goodfellas. Then we'll get into our picks of the week. Lindsay, you kept it on the Scorsese front with Cape Fear. I sure did. Which wow. is a, really a movie that I love. It's kind of a terrifying portrayal by Robert De Niro. So friggin' scary. Yeah. And uh, I uh, connected 
via uh, Scorsese being a producer on Grace of My Heart. It was a movie that came out in 1996, also kind of a biopic movie directed by, written and directed by Alison Anders, and also uh, starring Ileana Douglas, who has a uh, small role in Goodfellas. Oh, Ileana Douglas is uh, in Cape Fear as well. Yeah, that's right. And she's wow. in Goodfellas. This is an Ileana Douglas episode. I guess. Tribute episode. <laughs> and uh, she actually has a one of my favorite podcasts out right now. Yeah, her podcast yeah, her is podcast. wonderful. She she uh, is probably one of the most well-researched like podcasters that, she, that I've listened to. She knows her stuff. Yeah, yeah. she's she's cool. Yeah. So, uh, and then as always, we'll round things out with a Murray moment, but before we get into our first clip from Goodfellas, Lindsay, can you just give us a brief lowdown on what this movie's about? Oh man, where to even start with Goodfellas? Well, this is a true story of Henry Hill and his involvement with a particular mafia crime family in New York. On the surface, this is a rise and fall story, following Henry moving up in the crime world, landing bigger paying jobs than could ever be imagined following his marriage, and eventually getting over his head in the world of narcotics, and all of this leading up to him flipping on his mafia family to save his own skin. It's really hard to believe that this is a true story, especially when being a police informant, a rat, it's kind of the last thing you'd ever expect from a big old mafia dude, but that's certainly what happens in this. And man, Goodfellas is just such a epic film. It really is. Well, uh, before we go to our first clip, I just I didn't say this in the beginning. I just want to say thank you, everybody that's been listening to us. Um, I can't thank you enough every episode, but especially if you've been sticking around with us, you know, two years into this thing, uh, we can't appreciate it enough. Well, thanks, Lindsay, for that summary. Goodfellas. That, I think that sums it up pretty well. We'll go to our first clip from Goodfellas, and we'll come back. We'll talk about it. My friend Jimmy. Oh. Henry, it's his joint. Nice it's Lisa. Hi. Hey, Frankie, how are you? Hey, Tommy, all dressed up. All grown up and doing the town. Look at this. Oh, Tommy. I forgot you was having a party oh. this month. Oh, oh, come here. Let me go say hello. Hey, Billy, how are you? Tommy, you know me. I haven't seen hey, you in six Billy. fucking years. How you doing, Billy? Jesus oh, well, Christ <laughs> almighty. You look terrific. How you feel? Watch this suit. Watch this suit. Watch this suit, you little frick. Hey, I know you're my life. All right, good. People getting too big on me Just now. Don't go busting my balls, Billy, okay? Hey, Tommy, if I was going to break your balls, I'd tell you to go home and get your shine box. <laughs> oh, this kid, this kid, this kid was great. They, they used to call him Spit Shine Tommy. I swear to God. Oh, he'd make your shoes look like fucking mirrors. Excuse my language. He was terrific. He was the best. And he made a lot of money, too. Salud, Tommy. No more shines, Billy. What? I said no more shines. Maybe you didn't hear about it. You've been away a long time. They didn't go up there and tell you. Uh, I don't shine shoes anymore. Relax, will you, for crying out? What's, what's got into you? I'm breaking your balls a little bit, that's all. I'm only kidding with you. Sometimes I mean, you don't sound like you're kidding. You know, there's a lot of people around. I mean, I'm only kidding with you. We're having a party. I mean, I just came home. I haven't seen you in a long time, and I'm breaking your balls, and you're, right away you're getting fucking fresh. I'm sorry. I don't mean right. to offend you. I'm sorry, too. It's okay. No problem. Okay, salute. Now go home and get your fucking shine box. Motherfucking hey, mutt! You, come you come fucking piece of shit! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, come on, come on! Come on! So, like we were saying, uh, Goodfellas was adapted from a book 
that was based on a true story by Nicholas Pileggi. I don't want to get too much into the book very much, but the author, Nicholas Pileggi, did have a very tight working relationship with Scorsese. So mm-hmm. we'll kind of kind of make that be a jumping off point. He wrote a book called Wise Guy, which was on, which centered on the real character, Henry Hill, which Goodfellas is based on. It was a huge bestseller and it was kind of like a, you know, true crime book that really went into, you know, Nicholas Pileggi really wanted to kind of like lock in on what do these guys do? Like, what's their operation? What's the main, what's this one guy do who's like not a mob boss? Because there were stuff, you know, movies about mob bosses and especially like uh, The Godfather, which was a fictional account, but mainly focused on mob bosses this was focused on like someone on the lower rung like the blue collar yeah and how they work their way up you know and how this underbelly this underworld worked it was a bestseller was a huge hit Scorsese read it and you know really identified with it because it took place in some of the same neighborhoods that he grew up in and didn't hang out with people like this but was aware of them and immediately identified with it wanted to make it into a movie and he called Nicholas Pileggi out of the blue and Nicholas Pileggi was, you know, well aware of Scorsese. I mean, Scorsese wasn't necessarily a household name, but in a lot of circles, he was had already proven himself as a, you know, master filmmaker. And Nicholas Pileggi said, you know, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'd love to do this and we'll work on it together. And they didn't even have a deal in place. I don't even think Scorsese was being represented at the time. I think it was a little bit later that Erwin Winkler, who was the producer of Goodfellas, found wise guy he found a excerpt of it in new york magazine and he saw that and was totally transfixed by the story and got in contact with nicholas pledgy's agent said you know hey dude i'm interested in making this movie and are you interested in selling and pledgy was like yeah but just so you know Martin Scorsese is, you know, he's contacted me and Erwin Winkler's like, that's cool and everything. You know, maybe we can work something out, but I'm interested in buying it. Let's see if we can negotiate the rights to the story. We'll check with Scorsese, see if he wants to do it. So everything just kind of fell into place. And Pileggi is like, I think I should write this with Scorsese. Erwin Winkler's like, cool, let's do this. And he just kind of made it all really easy for this to happen, for this collaboration between the two to happen. And so I think after The Last Temptation of Christ, that was a Martin Scorsese film, um, was basically as soon as that wrapped was when Goodfellas started. So that was kind of the beginning of this. And together, those two really took the bits out of Wise Guy that they wanted to make this movie from. So it's not all of the story that, that that's in Wise Guy. There's a lot more in that in that novel. And, you know, like everything when you when you you know, we talked about it in Misery, which any movie that's adapted from a book, you're gonna take things out and you're gonna condense it. And this is just this story. There's so much more that happened after where Goodfellas ended, and there's so much that happened in in this book that's not in the movie, but pretty much everything in Goodfellas actually did happen. In interviews that I've read with Nicholas Pileggi, he was really, I think, had like a great attitude about approaching the movie as a film because he did not come from a film background. He had never written a screenplay. And so when he was working with Scorsese, he, you know, said, you know, I'm not married to the book. Like, you know, let's move stuff around. Let's change context if we need to condense it to make it a film. And that's when they first came up with the idea of doing the Billy Bats character in the back of the, the trunk of the car still being alive and taking yeah. that out of the what was originally in the middle 
uh, moving that to the front and having that be a starting off point and then going back in time, which is a device that, you know, you see very much in movies now, but at, at the time that was like fairly original. And I think also too, um, Scorsese, who was a big fan of French New Wave film, Jules and Jim, took a lot of the way the style of like using voiceover narration and like showing condensing time in a short period where mm-hmm. we're showing Henry Hill as a kid. That whole opening, like kind of giving us the first chapter of his life as being a gangster in like a quick 10 minute voiceover, <laughs> yeah. like images moves really fast, but you get a lot of information, but it doesn't feel convoluted. It feels like very clean and like direct and paints a picture of how he started his life in, in the mob as like a 12 year old kid. And I think if you were to take everything that's in wise guy and, and put it into a movie, like everything, there's no way that you could have the, exhilaration and demonstration of this like fast hardcore lifestyle that is just like non-stop non-stop that's two and a half hours that's why it is kind of condensed into what it is between the you know freeze frames and condensing down it kind of i don't know this frenetic style almost it's kind of i mean i would never say martin scorsese's like punk rock or anything but it was breaking a lot of conventional you know, things that were happening in film at the time. Let's just say like freeze frames, like there was a point in which there, the, when those happen in, in the film, it's to stop and tell you something that's super important. And then we continue on. So many things that happen in this movie are very deliberate. And I think that that happens because we don't want to overwhelm the audience, but we want to serve them with a lot of information as quickly as possible and then move on to the next jumping off point. Yeah, when I think too also like go going off of what you're saying with the freeze frames mm-hmm. it's interesting because he he freezes the the frame in instances where you you would think that you you wouldn't want to freeze the frame because it's yeah. like in the middle of a like a very intense action sequence <laughs> like and someone's that's about when, ready to get hit yeah like there, there's like multiple yeah. times where he freezes it when you know to hold on something after like action has started like mm-hmm. a car blowing up or a guy getting ready to get get his head shoved in a oven to give us information you would think that it would be more jarring than it is but it's somehow it's like a very clever way to entice us with a exciting image and then stop it and then give us information i think it's like very very it's like a very clever way to keep us in the zone of like information that we need because there is a lot of information in this movie i mean i can't say that the first time i saw this movie and it's really hard for me to go back in my mind to think of the first time the first time yeah. i watched this movie because there is a lot of information but i I can, I can guarantee that like the first time I saw this, I didn't obtain all the information. I think when we talked, when we did Casino a while back for an episode, <laughs> I mean, that's a multiple viewing movie, yeah. but I love it because, you know, and, and I, and I think that that's perfectly fine. I think that it's hard for a movie to get, to give you that much information and is for an audience member to retain it all just names and mm-hmm. like instances of someone who's like, when they're talking about a character from 20 minutes ago. Sure. You know, and you're like, wait, what? You know, they've talked about like six, you know, six to 10 characters. And so I think with Goodfellas, you know, you get that, like you get the information and on a second and third viewing, you know, you're like, oh, Stax was the guy that I Mm -hmm. saw for like a second, you know what I mean? Or whatever. Like, yeah, exactly. One thing that I I hadn't thought of until right now, when you compare Goodfellas to Casino, that Goodfellas is like kind of broken down into sequences. And and I I, I don't mean just like, 
you know, filming like steady cam sequences or just how things look. But like certain, there are certain pockets of the movie where this happens and this happens and this happens. And Casino, I feel like, just keeps like going. It is just like a ever flowing story that is like, you know, yeah, we are traveling through like these real people's lives and like yeah. it going on. But Goodfellas feels like these are you know, pockets of time. Well, yeah, and Goodfellas too, it's like, it feels very condensed, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's not, it's not this like ever expansive universe. I mean, yeah. it's very streamlined, which is, you know, these guys, it's not like they traveled all, you know, they, they stayed in their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. They took care of this very small portion of a very large city. Very much like how you, you know, modern day, uh, gangs, you know, like they control this one block or these three, this three town, blocks, yeah. you know, it's like, that's the world to them. They're, they're the king of that particular block. And these guys, there's an exaggeration in the way they talk of like, yeah. you know, we are yeah. the kings of the city. It's just like, well, maybe, but you know what I mean? <laughs> but definitely yeah. if you're like, yeah, neighborhood, you know, for sure. Yeah. One of the coolest things with Goodfellas is, you know, we're talking about all of this frenetic energy and all of this fast pacedness. And I feel like that goes on for an hour and a half, at least. And you don't notice that it's moving that fast. And I think that, one, it is the artistic vision of the film and how it looks. But it's also meant to make you feel how Henry Hill is moving through life and how he's steadily building up and continuing to go through life and just moving on up, doing it like the world is working for Henry Hill and everything is just flowing. Things are good. You kind of like the dudes that, you know, are doing all of these kind of awful things when you think about it. And you, you are being seduced into kind of wanting to be a gangster. Like you're kind of wanting to be in this world, just like we see with, with Henry's wife. I'm not really saying that, the audience is supposed to be Henry's wife, Karen, but in the same way that Karen is seduced into this world so kind of easily and explains away like what her husband is doing, like we we do the same thing and it isn't until an hour and a half-ish through when things turn and that's also when the style of the movie kind of changes and we flip from it being this fast moving, fast moving, like kind of like crazy things to it just kind of like stops. And then things kind of changed up until the very end when it is a quick fall. Yeah. And I, and I think that it's very uh, indicative of like Scorsese and, and Pelleggi, like making it a very interesting tale of like people that you, you think it would be, they'd be fun to hang around with, but then <laughs> You know, and, and they make yeah. it seem like it's funny and it's this like exciting world and they're going to see shows and they get a front row seat and it is very seductive. And I think that it what's great about the script and the movie is because it is a very, very violent film and it is a very, you know, in a way like uh, there's a lot of misogyny in the movie, but it doesn't glorify that and it doesn't really glorify these guys' lives. I mean, you kind of see them go really get dragged through the mud, you know, in the last hour of this movie. I think that you need that. You need something exciting to bring an audience into this world. If if Tommy shot Spider in, in the first, like, five minutes, you know, you'd just be like, oh, this is, like, kind of a grim, <laughs> like, I wouldn't want to, you know, this doesn't seem great. It's like you could get killed at any minute. But, you know, when you go on this big, you know, this 45-minute ride of, like, oh yeah, and we got to do this and we had money and we had, you know, control and we had power and, you know, we could give anything we wanted. It's, 
and no one messed with us. It's like, you know, there is something about that. You know, I mean, every, all of us, I think, you know, we, you know, wish we had a little more control in our job or we, you know, in our life or, you know, and so this is basically saying like, if you don't have control, you're a sucker, (laughs) you know, you're an idiot and this is the way you should live. And you're like, Oh, maybe these guys, uh, they're onto something, maybe they're onto something here. And then all of a sudden you realize pretty quickly that just like, (laughs) no, no, I feel fine being on uh, the other side of the law. And if you hear the real Henry Hill talk about this and getting involved in this world, I mean, when he when he was alive and well after he was kicked out of the witness protection program and anyone that had a hit on him in his life had passed away, man, the dude talked about how this was just, he didn't know anything different. That's what he grew up across the street from this cab stand and like saw all of this happening and that just was life. And when you step back from it and you're taken out of that world, you realize, whoa, I'm liking existing on in a completely different reality than anyone else. Yeah. And I totally think that that's what makes this movie so fascinating is that you have these characters that are sort of existing outside of a reality that most of us are familiar with. Before we move on to uh, another clip, I want to talk a little bit about the violence in the movie, because that's something not, not so much now. There's so many movies. Goodfellas kind of seems relatively tame compared to a lot of the violence that you'd see on you know, any streaming service now and movies or television shows. But at the time this movie came out, it was pretty notorious for its language and its violence. But I think what makes it have so much punch and so much, uh, I think, like a gut reaction is that the violence in this movie, and same much with a lot of Scorsese's films, is that there's like a realism to it. There's not, it's not necessarily like you're seeing uh, blood and gore, but like just, I mean, the scene to me that's the most violent and vicious to watch is when uh, in like one shot, uh, Ray Liotta's like bashing that guy's face with the butt <laughs> of his gun. Yeah. And it's not it like sucks. you really see, you know, but you hear the sound of it and you like physically see him. And the, it's like, to me, that's like such a rough scene, you know, and it looks so real and they don't, you know, they don't cut away from it. And I think that that's something where you do see that violence is very much a part of these guys's. Uh, lives, you know, it's like violence is is a way to sort of like solve problems, and you see it over and over again in this movie via murder, via beatings. Again, it's like I feel yeah. like this movie. It's not glorified. It's like it has it has purpose and it serves its purpose well. Yeah, it's it's the same way in which you know we see these guys tell stories or the the way in which they speak, the rhythm of their language, the way in which violence happens is just a part of it's just a part of life and it's almost incidental and Scorsese does this in a way that like you were saying doesn't glorify it but it is intended to make us realize how cold and unfeeling this world is almost and that hey man you know what you make fun of me you bust my balls a couple times um I might bust your face I think one of the scenes that really shows how rough these guys are is the scene where Joe Pesci's character Tommy shoots and kills a kid, the character of Spider, who, you know, he shoots him in the foot and then a couple scenes later he ends up, they're all joking around and he ends up shooting well, him and killing him. I mean, Spider does tell him to go fuck himself for right. shooting him in the foot. So, I mean, you know, you know that's his justification right there. And, and, you know, and everyone else seems like, quickly like what are you doing you know it's like we're all we've all killed people and done some messed up stuff it's like you just shot a kid over like insulting you that was a scene that the studio wanted Scorsese to take out 
And he had to kind of fight to keep that in because, you know, that is the scene that kind of like shows the audience like these guys are not fun. It can go from laughing and having a good time to like a kid getting like, you know, you're an accessory to a murder and a kid getting shot, and you know, in the stomach and laying on the floor. And yeah. Joe Pesci's just like, oh, I'll dig the hole. You know, he's like <laughs> more irritated yeah, that they're, they're t- mad at him than he sh- killed somebody. He's more irritated that they like aren't happy about it. And it's very cold and like, you know, you see like this guy is a complete maniac. And it is a point in the movie where you can kind of see it turning, you know, Ray Liotta, Henry Hill's stomach a little bit. They know that that's a part of their life still. But as an audience, you're kind of taken aback more. And I think it would have been an injustice for the studio to like remove that scene. Oh my gosh. I think it was, that's the scene that really like drives home the idea that just like, yeah, these guys aren't nice guys i mean this is these are cold-blooded killers and for a scene like that where that incident really did happen in order to put that in a movie and somehow insert the humor that does happen in it that's like you're kind of i don't know you're uncomfortably laughing because you know robert de niro's like busting his balls about shooting him like why did you do that well you told me he was making fun of me what was i supposed to do like as an audience as a movie viewer you're laughing at that but this kid just got murdered he just got straight up murdered and in a movie setting you know you can enjoy this watching but like this really did happen and it 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 is really crazy how you know, we can take this true story and put it into a movie and it is a completely different feel. And, you know, the real Henry Hill's like, this guy is a complete psychopath. And th- this is how we illustrate it on film because it is meant for entertainment. But the wildest thing to me is that you see all this violence on the screen, but the real life characters, as Henry Hill tells it, they were way more violent in real life uh, if anything, Goodfellas toned down the violence of their characters. I know Henry Hill said that, you know, when he was younger, his first few instances of, of working with Polly, who Paul Servino plays, that Polly was the head boss of the, the crime family that Henry Hill gets uh, connected with and starts working for. The Polly character seems like pretty calm and, yeah. you know, like, you know, he seems kind of gruff. Polly seems pretty cool. <laughs> in, in Goodfellas, the movie, but in yeah. real life, one of the first in- instances of Henry Hill recall- calls is Polly walking into a bar and beating a bartender nearly to death with a baseball bat because she told Polly's wife about his infidelity. If they would have showed that, you know, in the opening of Goodfellas, it'd been pretty grim film. It'd be like, man. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's like you would just kind of like, I think it would be hard to like continue to like watch these guys and be entertained. So if anything, the violence of the real life characters were kind of toned down for the movie to make it a little more enjoyable and entertaining. Yeah. I think that's the magic of movie making where we can take something like a book that has all of these grim, you know, details of things that really did happen and you make it into an entertaining film. It really is totally magic how, how Goodfellas works. Well, let's go to another clip of this magical film, and then we'll uh, come back. We'll talk about some more. So now my plan was to stay alive long enough to sell off the dope that the cops never found and then disappear for a while until I can get things straightened out. Karen! Where's the stuff that I left, Karen? I flushed it down the toilet. You what? What was I supposed to do? They were all over the house. Karen, that was worth $60,000. I need that money. That's all we got. What was I supposed to do? They Karen! Weren't, they were in everything. The 
That's all the money that we had, Karen. I was dependent on that. Why did you do that? I had to. Karen, they, wa they were going to find oh, it. Fuck, Karen. They would have never they found, found it. it. I swear to you, Henry. I swear to Henry. They would have found it. Oh, no. Why did you do that? Why? Found it. Why did you I do that, Karen? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So uh, this is always one of my favorite things to talk about when we go into movies, and that's the cast and kind of how actors bring these rich characters to life. Really great, I mean, cast. Like, this had a couple upstarts with Ray Liotta, obviously, as the main character of Henry Hill, who I think this is, will always be considered, like, his best performance and his most memorable role, which yeah. I definitely feel the same. Yeah. And uh, Lorraine Bracco, who plays his wife, Karen, in the movie, uh, she's just great in this. And I think she has that kind of gravelly voice and the way she can kind of scream with that gravelly voice. It <laughs> yeah. makes it just seem so real and intense. Always when there's a fight scene between a male and female in a Scorsese movie, it just feels so real to life. Mm -hmm. Her performance is so amazing in this. And yeah, the, the gravelly, but also like that really authentic New York like accent that she, that she, I mean, she still has to today. Um, yeah. Lorraine Bracco and of course, Robert De Niro. He, I don't think there's ever a movie I've watched him in and been like, you know, the weak link is Robert De Niro. Never, never has definitely not his youth. <laughs> definitely not in his like, Oh, even pretty. as a, comedian later on in isn't it funny i think i said this in a podcast before bill murray once said it's funny how people you know think of him as a as a dramatic actor now and they think of robert de niro as a comedian and it's like wow that's not yeah that's not how things started out it's strange it is but but yeah this i think is in like de niro's really like the prime of his mm -hmm. career i mean he had already turned in so many good performances like 10 years prior leading up to Goodfellas. And mm -hmm. I think this really is kind of him working on that level of like playing the quiet, you know, intellectual character mixed with like, you know, can explode at any moment character. I mean, he really like reigns it all in here. And he was really wanting to be on point for this character. I guess he was not shy about calling the real Henry Hill as often as possible and being like, how does, how does he hold a cigarette? Like, what would he do in this situation? Like, he was really on top of it and wanted to be as precise as possible. And Henry Hill said everyone in this nailed all of their performances. Even Joe Pesci, too, who, you know, is of a shorter stature. The man, the real life man that he's playing is a very large, I want to say like six foot tall dude and very intimidating. And not to say that Joe Pesci being a shorter fellow isn't intimidating. Dude, I wouldn't want to meet that guy in a dark alley. You kidding me? The Joe Pesci stature kind of makes the character of Tommy more realistic to me because yeah. there is the little man syndrome that I've witnessed throughout my entire life. <laughs> of guys that are like short in stature who just always have something to prove. And it's just like the minute, you know, they can, they can just mess with people all day long, but like mm -hmm. the absolute second that anyone like messes with them a little bit, they just like totally fly off the handle. Cause they feel like they got something to prove. And like, I think he really like 
kind of captures that psychology of like the little man syndrome and also this idea that to to me like I always uh, frame Joe Pesci's performance in Goodfellas in Jack Nicholson's performance in The Departed because Jack Nicholson's supposed to be this like really scary like psycho character and you know says all this crazy stuff that he improved in The Departed and to me isn't scary he, it's like too over the top it's too like mm, it yeah. almost becomes like cartoonish to me I don't buy it and Joe Pesci you know who just comes in like a you know just like a raging just crazy animal and to me like makes it much more believable because mm-hmm. um, he's all action you know he's like no talk you know just like and and you don't get that sense about him is the that's the only thing that's kind of strange it's like you see Tommy only in a very short scene of meeting Henry when he was a kid. And oh, you yeah. get you get no sense that he's like this kind of like walking time bomb. And these guys, because they, you know, they like having him around because he is, they know that like he can go where no one else wants to go, but sometimes he crosses a line and eventually that's his downfall. But he really plays this sort of like ice cold maniac every moment, you know, and, and, the, and then I think that's why that whole like, do I yeah. amuse you scene, which... Joe Pesci, he improvised in the way if he came up with the idea, they worked it out, they wrote into a script, and then they performed it. But that wasn't in the wasn't in the original script. You buy that because you know how crazy he is, and it's like he seems like a guy that will like you would stumble on something. He'd be like, "Are you making fun of me?" And all of a sudden, <laughs> like you go from like laughs and like, "No, like I was just complimenting you." And you're taking it the wrong way, but you can't even say that because he's just coming at you like a madman. He's already you know? digging your grave and there's right no, now. And there's no, and you know that there's no rationalizing. Yeah. And it's a, and it's like that. I feel like there's like that scene is intense because Joe Pesci like really established right away that this he's just a loose cannon. And the way that Joe Pesci plays just this kind of like ice cold, any moment that something happens, like when Spider insults him, the way that he sits there in this calm stillness is friggin' terrifying. And the same way with the, yeah, you think I'm funny, that scene, just the stare, the way that anything, even the way that he like talks to his mother and there's there's love there, definitely, but he still has this iciness that is still kind of scary, totally. And evidently, too, that that scene that that he came up with, I guess that did happen to him. I guess when he was yeah, a he server, like, he was the guy that yeah said somebody was funny, and <laughs> he said like a mobster was. He yeah. was telling a story, and he said you're funny. And that that story did happen to him. <laughs> and there's a there's a lot the another actor to to mention i mean all, a lot of great little parts you My know God. but but with all of a the cast of, of the sopranos is yeah in with like a Good lot Fellas. of authenticity but paul sorvino as paulie just a very quiet you know a lot of shots of just him like sort of staring and eating but you really get the sense i think of like he really is like that picture of like a, a mob boss you know of like the sort of bigger statured guy that you know you don't you don't even want to insult like you just you just say quickly what you have to say you don't want to hold them up and Polly didn't have to move fast yeah. for anybody and I just I think he plays like that sort of like quiet leader gentle character that you know like you don't even want to mess with you don't want to 
awake the giants, you know. And at the same time, there's something about him like this is the movie Polly, not the not the real one. The movie Polly that Paul Servino plays, man, I kind of feel like I I would do any job for that guy. He seems genuinely like, you know what? You got my best interest in mind. I got your back. You got my back. I would totally do anything for that man. The the real Polly sounds terrifying. Yeah. And I kind of want to, if we can, go back to Ray Liotta just for a moment. Because I do want to mention that, you know, Ray Liotta kind of plays two (laughs) sides of of Henry Hill. He does. You know, he plays the the early year side of Henry Hill, which was like trying to make his way, not just a army guy for the mob, you know, not just a guy who's like, all right, I'm going to go do this hit and then come back. And, you know, he wanted to be like an integral part of the crew, you know, someone who's impressive, who's bringing money in. He also didn't have the stomach for a lot of like the more violent. Yeah. So he, you know, he used his intelligence as a means to like, you Mm -hmm. know, let's, let's try to like rip off a place without gunning everybody down and getting the cops called on us. Like, you know, we do these like, quiet robberies and you see this like very quiet intensity that he has and then in the middle of the movie he kind of plays it where you see he's kind of like been inducted into that lifestyle when he beats down the guy that uh, attempts uh, to rape his wife attempts to to rape karen and then the sort of like family guy it's taking you know falls in love with karen but then the later half of the movie or like i guess would be like the third act of the film which is what the real henry hill was for pretty much the rest of his life kind of like stole cold junkie kind of messed up on drugs and wasn't making the most clear-headed decisions and god uh ray liotta i mean just looks you know you see movies where people are like they have them like looking all drugged out (laughs) but god i mean he plays he plays it top notch, and I mean, it's just bringing everything there, and even you know, even yeah. all the way down to like being sort of like exhausted and just like naming names and like calling out his buddies in the courtroom, you know, when he, yeah, when he 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 like rats everybody out. He just has like for the rest of the movie, there's just like exhausted, washed out look on his face, and uh, it really I think like brings the audience in, like you feel like you're right there with them. Granted, a lot of that's due to the way like Scorsese shot him and Michael Ballhaus cinematographer shot the movie yeah. and kind of brings everything in real tight and close in those scenes and makes it kind of frantic. But his performance, I, I think is like goes up there with one of the better performances of someone on the brink of like total like overload <laughs> from like doing drugs. And Yeah. He's like, he's like what you look like when you stayed out too late on a Sunday morning and you got to go to work on Monday and you just didn't go to bed and you smoked three packs of cigarettes and drank everything and did every drug. And then you tried to be a normal person. That's what he looks like or what, what at least I feel like I would look like if I was like that at 7am on Monday. And, Um, uh, and Lorraine Bracco too, sort of like brings the paranoia, you know, cause she's pretty strung out on yeah on coke as well at the end of this and she has it in her eyes like this sort of you know she's right there with ray Liotta like no i believe you like things are like <laughs> insane right now yeah yeah the 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 scene that we're talking about is commonly referred to as the last day as a wise guy and it's this extended kind of like long sequence with scorsese and cinematography and how thelma schoonmaker threw this together it is just this so deliberately like woven together i forget how long the entire like sequence is but it starts at 6 55 a.m and ends really late at night with a police pointing a gun to henry's head 
And it is just like nonstop the whole time. And it is such a cool moment where you, you spend an hour and a half in the first part of this movie, like building and building and building. And then you finish out with this yeah. like really tight and fast ending. It's like, I don't know. It's just like a, a beautiful sequence. Well, and one thing I love too is that the voiceover, you know, cause we've, we're using Ray Liotta's voiceover throughout the film. And I love how when it gets to this section of the movie, even his voiceover is a little more frantic as well. Yeah. You know, he kind of sounds like <laughs> he's saying it in like an exhaustive way. It's not like just keeping pace with like someone who's like, like a narrator telling a story. Mm-hmm. Like his voiceover is the character at that moment. Yeah. You know? One of the best things about the voiceover is the fact that we're not having someone that's telling us just the story of what's happening or that this person is dead and they're telling us what happened to their lives. It's almost just like, this is, I'm on the other side of this. This is well after this has happened and I'm I'm leading you through it. It's experiencing with it. I think the art of the voiceover can not work in in some ways or can be a way to fill a void when a story doesn't have enough to 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 fill it for you some voiceover can be you know almost seem like it's your uh i think nicholas pelleggi said this is like it seems like patchwork for a movie yeah yeah. and i've certainly seen that in films but i think with the voiceover in goodfellas it's not patchwork it's it's so it's like you don't need to have like an entire scene where he goes over and they talk about the guns and why he has those guns when he's going to sell them to silencers. They use that scene to have an opportunity for Robert De Niro to tell him, you need to get off the stuff. Get off the junk. Yeah. Yeah. and, and so he uses the narration to get us into that scene, but then we're given information that's like more about their relationship. And that's what I love about the really how they, he does the voiceover in, in Goodfellas and in, in Casino. It's like, mm-hmm. it's just basically like a link to get us into a scene without having to watch an entire scene unfold and like having the scene have to explain the events and why they're there. It's like you get this quick little punch in a voiceover and then you get to tail end of the scene where you get the meat of like what the characters mm-hmm. need to actually exchange for a relationship, not about like a plot point. Well, before we uh, wrap things up here on the Goodfellas talk and go to our picks of the week, I uh, wanted to just talk briefly about Scorsese. Um, we talked a little bit about his career when we did our casino episode, but it's definitely worth talking a little bit more about, you know, considering we're covering one of his, I think, best movies. Greatest films. This is probably, I, I do love Casino, but this is probably my number one favorite Scorsese film. And this one was kind of a little bit more personal to him. When he, you know, read this, he really felt like it was the most honest portrayal that he had read about, at least of mob life. And that's something that he not necessarily grew up around, you know, exactly, but knew of things, you know, if the, let's just say if there was somebody that was going to get hit on him at four o'clock, you know, his mom was going to be one of the ones that got the word to get the kids off the street. So, you know, he was around that type of thing. So for Goodfellas, he pulled on a lot of influences. You know, we already mentioned the French film Jules and Jim, but he also pulled on uh, Public Enemy and very directly the end scene from The Great Train Robbery at the end of Goodfellas. We have, uh, right as it closes out, we have Joe Pesci shooting directly at the camera and that is, you know, the exact ending scene from The Great Train Robbery. And this most certainly was not his 
first dive into dealing with mafia life and gangster life in general. Scorsese started with Mean Streets, like a small version of Goodfellas. And then there's certainly a little bit of mob activity in Raging Bull. Um, but then after Goodfellas, and, I, and I, you know, Scorsese has done a ton of movies outside of the gangster genre, but it is something that he seems to go back to quite often, you know, Gangs of New York, a little bit of The Departed, and certainly, you know, his most recent film, The Irishman. But I noticed that, like, after Goodfellas, his, his movies got much larger. I mean, he's always worked within the studio system, but he hasn't been this like hit maker. You know, usually his movies have some sort of like artistic integrity. They're usually character driven. But after Goodfellas, you know, and after Gangs of New York, I mean, he started doing these like hundred million dollar movies with like Wolf of Wall Street, The Aviator, which I think is amongst one of his best films. If you haven't seen The Aviator, absolutely just astounding. And The Departed was a big budget movie. Shutter Island was a big budget movie. Any movie that he did with Leonardo DiCaprio had like a really huge budget. (laughs) And The Irishman certainly had a huge like $100 million budget. But even though these are like very huge, big Hollywood films at their core, they're still the same thing that he's been doing, which is like, you know, a character who's driven, who like gets sucked into a world. And then eventually sometimes that becomes their downfall. It is a theme and a story that he goes to time and time again, sometimes with a mob connection, sometimes not. But he always makes it interesting and riveting. And that has so much to do with the performances and with the ability to, you know, extrapolate these incredible performances out of his actors. I love that he encourages, I mean, and maybe it's just with this crop of actors that he uses, like in Goodfellas, but encourages, you know, at least people that know each other really well to do ad-libbing and then going back through and reworking that ad-libbing into the script to where it is something that's scripted but you feel natural when you're saying these lines so maybe like something that didn't feel natural all of a sudden feels completely like a conversation that you would be having if you were in that situation yeah and he's such a for such a prepared precise filmmaker it's it's great that he has that side of him that's also willing to say like oh you have an idea let's hear it out let's try it and kind of one last thing I wanted to say before we go to our picks of the week is that, you know, he's had this like lifelong relationship with editor Thelma Schoonmaker, who's pretty much edited 90% of the movies that mm-hmm. Scorsese has made. And, you know, just an incredible editor. And you can see it on screen, you know, to have someone, because an editor is like such a crucial part of yeah. like yeah. putting all these pieces together to make them function as a as a movie to to so that the story is clear uh having someone that you know he can trust that has worked with him and knows his style and knows what he wants and knows what he doesn't want i can't imagine how that partnership must mean so much to him and how much trust that those two have in each other and that she can predict what he's going to be doing or what he wants and she gets his footage and just knows kind of immediately what to do with it and if he gets frustrated like she has said in many interviews if he gets frustrated and like can't deal with it anymore he'll leave and she'll kind of take over and know exactly what he wants and that to me is a beautiful brilliant partnership that I mean has been since I think like his first or second film that he made since the late 70s yeah yeah so Thelma Schoonmaker, man. Yeah, and won, a, won an Oscar for, for mm-hmm. editing for Raging Bull and has been nominated numerous times yeah. you know, yeah. for Scorsese movies. Well, let's, uh, we'll come back for some final thoughts on 
Goodfellas, but let's uh, move into our picks of the week. So, Lindsay, your pick of the week was the movie that Scorsese did directly after Goodfellas, and that's 1991's Cape Fear. What can you tell me about Cape Fear? Man, I didn't remember much about this movie like when it came out other than I liked it, but I couldn't remember specifics about it. I know I saw it at too early of an age initially, but dang, what a heart-pounding thriller. <laughs> First off, for Scorsese to rework a fairly well-known film from the 60s, you know he's already thought this one through and knows exactly what he wants to do to call it his own. By this point, he and Robert De Niro already had a well-established friendship and working relationship by the time this film rolled around. For me, De Niro has always nailed every role um, he's ever been given, even in comedies. The man dominates, but watching him in Cape Fear, this was kind of the first time that he absolutely terrified me. I couldn't think of another time. I mean, I know he's played plenty of scary fellows before, and, you know, he's not exactly happy-go-lucky and good fellows, but nothing like this ex-con named Max Cady in Cape Fear. He's recently been released from jail and has had time on his hands to learn all the ins and outs of his case, which was uh, an aggravated assault charge that he was put away for, a crime that was lessened from a straight-up rape case, um, something that kind of comes into play later. So now, Katie seeks revenge on his former attorney for burying information that could have, presumably, or the way that he sees it, saved him from this 14, I think 14 or 15 year jail sentence. This is very much a melodramatic stalker thriller of the most terrifying kind. Katie's mental torment and stalking bleeds onto his former attorney's family and therefore putting his attorney's wife and daughter in danger. And with this whole strong undercurrent of rape throughout the movie, Katie is a clear misogynist. You know that this story is only going to get darker. Kate Fear is really wound so tightly with every burst. There's just something awful that happens in this story you're left with a constant sense of foreboding and like when what is the next awful thing that's going to happen because I don't know if I can stomach it Nick Nolte plays De Niro's slick lean kind of vanilla a little shady yet very convincing former attorney named Sam Bowden although physically formidable Nolte's a big guy um, he really can't match De Niro's dominance in this movie and De Niro's totally ripped Ripped and tattooed, too, in this movie. Uh, Jessica Lang plays Nolte's wife in a strong, kind of conflicted role that's more than just a simple, scared wife part. Now, De Niro was nominated for an Academy Award for this movie, but so was a baby-faced Juliette Lewis, who plays the 15-year-old daughter of Nolte and Lang. Now, she's an important, albeit extremely uncomfortable part of this movie as she turns into the subject of mental manipulation and sexual fixation of De Niro's Katie character. There are many ways in which we see how the Bowden family is rape for being messed with, almost too perfect a timing for a crazed, stalking murderer to enter their lives. Mom and dad have this marital discourse stemming out of an affair that we're only told about. We don't actually see that. And Lang's character continues to struggle with this as her uh, husband still has his flirtatious ways, even if he never acts on it. Juliette Lewis is your typical teenager, hates her parents, and wants you know to be an adult way too early in age. And we can kind of predict where the story is going to uh, take us. Ileana Douglas, who we talked about before, 
um, has a particularly notable part in this film as a rape and assault victim of Katie's. Her part is that she refuses to press charges against him. As a person who works in the legal system, she feels it would further victimize her by going through the system like her character would be torn apart and blamed for her own rape. It's certainly some powerful commentary here, whether Scorsese intended on this being a a, a big undercurrent throughout the movie, but there's certainly a statement being made here. Now, I wouldn't necessarily say that this movie is adversely triggering if that subject matter is... uh, horribly uncomfortable for you but it is the undercurrent to why this entire horror story is happening and also plays into why I really appreciate the moral struggle and backbone really of this entire film. The reason Max Cady seeks revenge on his former attorney is this. While representing his client, Nolte's Bowden attorney character finds out that the 16-year-old that Katie raped was considered under the law to be promiscuous, meaning that she had had you know, more than one partner in a month. Bowden finds this out, intentionally buries it, because, you know, as as Katie's trial's coming up, he knows that Katie is nothing but a menace to society. He intentionally raped and beat this girl. He needs to be put away. So, in essence, Bowden personally judged Katie, and now Katie is thinking, you didn't do your job, I'm going to show you exactly what pain is, basically. As you would assume, for a movie as emotionally charged as this, the finale is massive. Now, I read some reviews when I was doing some research that said it was too long, but for me, I don't know, I didn't get tired of of it. I really hung through it the whole time. It is certainly tense. De Niro really reaches some new levels here. Scorsese does some directly addressing the camera moments, which, strangely enough, like it doesn't take you out of the scene. And the fact that this climax takes place on a boat in the middle of a storm with the Bowden family held captive by this abusive Katie who's, like, tormenting them, it is a nail-biter. And like I said before, De Niro has never been more terrifying than in Cape Fear. And just a real quick technical rundown here, Scorsese really does shine with this re-envisioning of the movie, and also the screenwriter Wesley Strick brilliantly crafted together this updated story for the times. And man, that editor, Thelma Schoonmaker, she does some impeccable reprising of the quick cuts that we see in Goodfellas to create this hurried fury and panic. She always does an amazing job. The cinematographer, Freddie Francis, the visual storytelling that he does is pretty friggin' cool in this movie, too. And Elmer Bernstein does a haunting reprisal of the original score. Elmer Bernstein, who most famously, I don't know if it's most famously, but I know him most from doing the Ghostbusters score. Just such intentional dedication to preserving what was loved about this original, but so much care and thought put into this newer version. Cape Fear is about retribution. It's a shocking story of guilt, desperation, vengeance, and corruption, subjects Scorsese has been exploring since the very beginning of his career. What's right? What's moral? Where do we draw the line? Scorsese frequently wants the viewer to make decisions for themselves. He doesn't want to just put something out there that's clear-cut and, you know, give you the answer. He wants you to decide. Since there is so much wrongness contained within Cape Fear, it's important for you to trust your gut reaction, your instinct on how you feel at the end of the film. And this one, this one's a haunting one for me. Do you remember this one much, Justin? Oh, yeah. I've, I've watched Cape Fear numerous times, and this is 
really, uh, I think, like a fantastic thriller. Though I do like the original, and I appreciate the original mm-hmm. quite a bit. And I, I still think the original holds up quite well. Um, it's kind of culty. Like, a lot of people love that movie. And, yeah. I, and I remember seeing it when I was a kid, but... Yeah, I've watched yeah. both of them fairly recently, but Scorsese's version, to me, uh, just really is, like, much more intense and, like, a driven amps of it a up. movie. Yeah, it's, like, amped up by, like, a hundred yeah. of... of just insane climax. Yeah. It made me uncomfortable, but I couldn't stop watching it. Yeah. And I feel like it's close to like a horror film that Scorsese's ever going to get, you know? Yeah. You think so? Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Your turn. Tell me about your pick of the week. My pick of the week, like I said in the beginning, a 1996 film by director Alice Nanders, who kind of carved a, a career out with three other feature films that, uh, featured strong performances with uh, leading women in the role. She continued on with that with Grace of My Heart. Um, it stars uh, Goodfellas and Cape Fears, Ileana Douglas in the main role. Uh, the movie is a period piece that takes place over the course of about 15 years. It starts in the late 50s. Ileana Douglas plays a character named Edna Buxton who uh, wins a, comp- a singing competition and decides that she wants to make that her career. Uh, She moves to New York City, and within the first year, we see that she is sort of gotten there too late. She's told that women singers just aren't selling. They can't make money off of them. But she's also a songwriter and uh, gets hooked up with a record producer played by John Turturro, who is sort of doing an imitation of a Phil Spector-type character. But he loves the songs that she writes, but he reworks them into guy groups, like doo-wop groups. And uh, eventually she becomes very successful as a songwriter, though her career is like hindered multiple times by men that she that get introduced into her life. Uh, one is a songwriter played by Eric Stoltz. At first is like very cocky, um, but you can tell he's a little bit threatened by her talent eventually they start working on a song together but she becomes pregnant and when she becomes pregnant kind of shows that side of women being pregnant in the 60s and not being able to have a career Uh, there's actually even a scene where she's in the studio and her water breaks and even the woman that works at the studio is just like disgusted by you know everybody just kind of like flees the studio and uh, it's played for laughs in the movie but it's kind of you know really showing you uh, how ridiculous um, the men were treating the women in the 60s, 50s, and 60s. And eventually she leaves uh, Eric Stoltz, takes up with another songwriter uh, played by Matt Dillon, who is, I think, supposed to be like a Brian Wilson-type character. And the movie then shifts from 60s New York to like early 70s sun, happy music of California. So we get a little bit of a taste of like the different genres of music and the different trends that followed. But the main focus of the movie is on Ileana Douglas, who I think does like a really great performance. You know, she usually is plays like uh, the friend or the side characters or like the zany character here. Uh, she really, I, I think, is giving like a a much bigger role and and rightly so because she gives a great performance is um the main character you know it's it's kind of interesting uh you see uh kind of how songs are written and at the time they kind of say this multiple times in the movie how at the time that's how people songwriters made money people came in and performed the songs that became the big stars 
but maybe someone who wasn't as attractive or had a good voice, they would be the songwriter and they'd have someone come in who they could sell, like an image that they could sell. And they mentioned multiple times in the movie, like, oh, what are we going to do about these Beatles kids coming in here? They're, they're writing in, they're writing their own music, but then they're performing it as well. And that, and the kind of shift in music, how that became a thing with rock bands, like writing, performing their own music, um, which I think is kind of funny because, you know, if you look at contemporary music now, a lot of music is, you know, written by songwriters and then performed by somebody else. And that happened all throughout the 80s, 90s, and even currently. But this movie is a sort of nice little slice of life look at that time in, in the music industry. Definitely also written from a female perspective, which I think is a little unique to most movies that you see about bands and songwriters in the, in the music scene. Do you have this? Uh, I actually only have it on Laserdisc. Oh, okay. Yeah, but well, one but of I think these it's days, fairly accessible. Re- accessible, yeah. Yeah, I'd like to watch this. I remember the cover, like so many things from working in a video store. But um, yeah, I haven't seen this surprisingly, and it's something that I would really, yeah, I would really love to watch. It. It's a good movie. It definitely has like a a, a tinge of like a movie a period piece that was definitely made in the 90s mm-hmm. so it has that <laughs> it has that sort of like 90s filter over a movie that's supposed to take place in the 60s and 70s if you know what i mean yes but it's exactly still you know and you also mean. like yeah um but uh, one of the few movies uh, i'll say that was edited by Thelma Schoonmaker that was not a Scorsese film though he was the producer of the movie there's always going to be that partnership cool thank you so much for that i I'm, I'm i'm gonna watch that one well, those are our picks of the week, Cape Fear and Grace of My Heart. Uh, we'll keep on going here. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. One thing we learned from Goodfellas is no matter what is going on in life, you always have time to make good food. And not to stereotype here, I mean, I am half Italian, but I always think of pizza, real, actual, homemade pizza when it comes to my favorite Italian-inspired food. And heck, half of Goodfellas takes place in, in restaurants all across New York. And maybe the only thing you could think of or, you know, conjure up for Billy Murray, the Irishman, and pizza is maybe that scene from Stripes where he drops a pizza in the middle of the street and doesn't want to leave it behind, throws it back in the box, and heads home. Or maybe it's Billy, you know, just growing up in the Chicago area, a place that's known for its signature-style pies. I'm sure the guy has had his fair share of slices in his life. A former co-worker of his, Carrie Simon, known while he was alive as the rock and roll chef, remembered working with Billy outside of Chicago at a Little Caesars. He even tried to convince Billy to be a chef, but Simon, you know, he spotted Bill's natural talent, his off-the-cuff humor from moment one. He knew that this guy was destined for something else. 
There's even a Murray legend out there about when Billy worked at this pizza parlor and this patron who remembered him as just the funniest guy and went there so often because of him. So often that periodically Billy would say, you know, just go ahead, go make your own pizza. Now, they weren't the best of friends or anything, but over the course of time, you know, if you lose track of people, that sort of thing. But apparently this patron got sick with cancer much later in life and a friend of his contacted Billy's sister who then called her brother and Billy just called this guy out of nowhere to reminisce about the pizza parlor days. Apparently that's a true story. I believe it. A more well-known pizza story comes from Michael Ovitz, Billy's former agent in the 90s. Ovitz would go weeks without hearing from Billy And like many in his life, this wasn't a new thing. It was almost expected, albeit frustrating. More than a few times, Billy would unexpectedly show up at Ovitz's house and claim to be a pizza delivery guy. Ovitz said that this happened so many years like this. Billy would just show up on his doorstep with a pizza in hand and, you know, come in, talk for a little while, and then he just wouldn't hear from him for a few weeks. And just a couple of years ago, While writing in uh, Danny Aykroyd's 1940s Buick, he and Billy went to Aykroyd's favorite pizza parlor, the Pizza Place, up in Canada while Bill was in town playing with his band. Evidently, while on their way to pick up their to-go order, Aykroyd's Buick was overheating, so they needed to hang out at the pizza parlor for a little bit longer, grab some water. And while there, Billy asked uh, if the Cubs game could be flipped on while they waited. Okay, okay, okay. I'll get to the point of this pizza rabbit hole I've taken us all down. All of these stories might be great and all, but how about this one? Anyone remember the time that Billy was an uninvited guest on a 1991 Letterman episode which featured Martin Scorsese as a guest? You'd think that the best moment may be when Letterman asked if Bill had a question for Scorsese and Bill replies, um, how do you get red sauce, a red sauce stain out of a shirt? Marty got a real kick out of that one, and I'm pretty sure that the guys had known each other before this time, too, so his humor was was not lost on Scorsese. But perhaps maybe the best moment of this entire show was Catherine Scorsese, Marty's mother, coming out to make one of her famous pizzas from scratch for her boy, Letterman, and Billy. Catherine gives you some helpful tips. You know, such as, you know, you got to start from scratch, not too much sauce or else you're going to ruin it. Evenly spread the cheese. There is such a thing as too much cheese. Just remember that. And probably the best thing, and I and I loved hearing this from a straight up Italian woman, use scissors to cut your pizza because they work best and they don't scratch your pan. I use scissors myself. Just saying. And apparently even Robert De Niro thinks that her pizza is the best around and he's had it many times, Catherine says. After all these Billy pizza stories and maybe you're jonesing for a slice yourself, you see what I'm getting to. And it was a moment like this is just worth waiting for, like a good homemade Scorsese pizza. And as expected, when Billy takes a bite out of Catherine's pizza... He definitely looks blown away by that homemade Italian goodness that could win over any good fella. I was fully expecting you to go the <laughs> Mad Dog and Glory route, so I, I figured I was, you were. I yeah, was trying yeah, to stay away one, from that it. One, that one, that one threw me. Not, way to not not hit it on the nose. I like that. I was trying to go away from that one. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I guess it, you know it's worth mentioning with Goodfellas. It's like so much food in this movie. So much. It just makes you really hungry. <laughs> just, we have it on the background and 
Yeah. Just seeing them cook sausages and make sauces mm-hmm. gets me. Gets just the word, moving. just the word pizza on anything. I'm like, that sounds good yeah. right now. What do, what do they have in at uh, Catherine Scorsese's house or Joe Pesci's mom's house in Goodfellas? I think it's just egg and I think it's just eggs and potatoes or something. Yeah. It's something super basic, yeah. but it still looks great. And they look like they're into it right yeah. after they killed a guy and have him in the trunk of their car. Well, thanks so much for that Murray moment. Of course, Justin. Well, do we have any uh, sort of final thoughts on Goodfellas? I know I have one quick little thought on it. Before we uh, close out the episode. Yeah. What I'm about to say has been said a million times by angry film lovers. And that's... Oh, man, what? I still find it unbelievable that Goodfellas, probably the best film in Scorsese's career, uh, lost to Dances with Wolves at the 1991 Academy Award ceremonies. I mean... And uh, Scorsese kind of went on to not win a Best Directing Award till The Departed, which... Though I think that is a very well-made movie, I think it's by far from one of his best films. And uh, but yeah, just I mean, and maybe there are. Um, let us know in the comments, or let us know uh, through email uh, if there's anyone out there listening that's just like, you know what? God damn it, Dances with the Wolves <laughs> should have won the Academy Award. Uh, that year, and it rightly so beat Goodfellas out. A uh, early '30s um, first-time director, Kevin Costner, beat Martin Scorsese in his prime as a uh, best director Oscar. So I don't know. I never hear anybody bring up Dances with Wolves, but Goodfellas remains an all-time classic in many people's hearts and eyes. Sure is a neat little film that Dances with Wolves. Yeah, I don't remember anything about it, and I don't think I'll be revisiting it. But you know what? Maybe there's a a lot there. I still would have picked Goodfellas over Dances with Wolves, no matter yeah. no matter what kind of. I don't even down. know. I don't even know how wildly Dances with Wolves is offensive nowadays. I was just gonna say, it's, it's is it offensive? <laughs> I feel like it definitely falls in like that white savior movie. Pretty sure it does. Loosely based on a true story that was probably like wildly. Uh, factually inaccurate Um, my final thought I just want to say how much I appreciate the scene of the uh, kind of like the it's not really a mass murder but of all of the people that are killed that are left over that could talk about the LaFonza heist um, in Goodfellas that it is over uh, Layla the cream song right it's cream it's not Eric Clapton I think it's Eric Clapton. Okay. Can double check. Yeah. Um, I fucking hate Clapton. So <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I mean, I'm pretty sure, don't like all, a lot of people hate Eric Clapton. Like, Town Cars, we all talked get, about. I don't want to get negative here. Well. The outro to Layla is perfectly. I'll restate all good. of this. Sean really hates Eric Clapton. I'm not a fan of Eric Clapton. I think a lot really of. Really any white guy that plays blues. <laughs> Pretty sure you're not alone, except for other white guys that play blues. So I think my my last moment I want to remember, and it kind of always brings a little bit of a tear to my eye, is where we see all of the people, all of the potential people that could be narcs on the LaFonza heist um, in Goodfellas, where we see each one of them, how they've been systematically murdered and it's all over the song Layla like the outro of that song it's just so beautiful 
and you know have some narration over it and it's just um i don't know there's just something magical about that scene and it just makes you feel um there's a few moments in this movie that that really evoke some i mean not not just a like pain from you know watching somebody get beat up but like uh, evoke some type of like real emotional reaction and and that's that's probably my number one and i that's the thing i think of whenever i think of this movie actually is that scene and i think like overall too it's like the best way to listen to that song too where you just like you don't hear the first part you just hear the uh like instrumental outro the piano and stuff i couldn't agree more on that one justin (laughs) well perfectly placed thank you for that two years two years we've been doing this (laughs) um you know i said it earlier but i can't thank anybody no i want to thank everybody not anybody yeah don't thank anybody you should just thank yourself no i can't thank everybody enough who's been listening supporting us commenting um, I hope you continue to do so. Matt Pace, Mary Timmel, yeah. Bull Shoulders, everybody that's really like, helped us out along the way yes. with music and and intros and graphics. We can't thank you enough, but also all the support and messages and you know downloads we've gotten. Uh, we are going to take a break for one mm-hmm. month, you know, to just sort of like recharge. But we'll be back for season three in June. Don't think that we're not working on this no, during no. that yeah, time because just, we are. We're just ca- <laughs> you know, we're just trying to catch up. It takes yeah. a lot of lot of lot of work to to get an episode out between research and you know organizing and getting mm-hmm. all the pieces right so that we try to put out a professional and and, and well produced episode. But uh, so we are going to take a month, but then when we come back uh, our season three opener will be themed, which we like here. <laughs> yeah. We'll be doing a double feature for our main feature, and that's, uh, it's going to be a babe, uh, 90s. <laughs> a babe? Yeah. Sort of like 80s, babes. 90s babysitter movie uh, double feature of Adventures in Babysitting and Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Both movies that, that have a real special place in my heart. Yeah, mine too. Mine too. Both that I grew up with and... The latter, I don't know, there's some part of that one that I just really identify with. <laughs> Not that I ever, yeah. you know, had a dead babysitter, but no. you know. Yeah. So that'll that's coming up uh, after after we come back from our, our uh, quick early summer break. Um, but uh, there's plenty of stuff to listen to in our archives if you want to uh, catch something before you hear the next new episode. You can listen to all of our old episodes at don'tpushpausepodcast.com if you want to please do follow us on our social medias twitter instagram and facebook don't push pause podcast we also have a youtube channel going we've got our episodes on there and any old videos that we've done we've put on there we also uh, please do visit our store on our website uh, we have don't push pause merch as well as posters uh, these boxes that we make from VH old VHS tapes uh, there you'll check you know if you go to our website you can see them on there um, some other goodies merchandise uh, all monies from that help us uh, we put it right back into the podcast yes we do also if you ever want to reach us uh, for a question whatever it is we always love hearing from people you can reach us at don't push pause podcast at gmail.com but until next time I'm Justin Johnson 
And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for two years with us, guys. <laughs>